Welcome to the Joy of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James Taylor. On this podcast, we explore the passion and purpose of leadership. Join us to explore lessons in leadership that demonstrate how you can live in the center of God's will. All right. Hey, it is great to have Pastor Larry Wynn with us on the show today. Larry, it's great to have you. Hey, man, I am so excited to be here. I'm excited about all that's happening with the school, and so it's just great. It's a great day. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting for me to be able to meet with you. You're, you're kind of a legend in this area, and I know you hate it when I, re- <laughs> when I make any reference to that idea, uh, but anybody who sinks three-plus decades into the same organization and, and watches the hand of God do amazing things in an organization uh, kind of becomes a legend. You know, when, they're, when they become, when, when you can approach three, three decades plus, plus, plus uh, of, of faithfulness at one institution and still love Jesus and still love people, uh, it's kind of a little bit of a miracle, you know? Yeah, really. <laughs> so, so give me just a nutshell on, on your time at Hebron. Uh, Hebron just, just celebrated, I think it was 180, 180 one, years, 180 years, yeah. 181 years yeah. uh, of history. So the church had been there for a long time. Uh, but give, give us a little bit of a nutshell on, on kind of how you came to be a pastor there at Hebron and then your time in the, in the ministry. That's a big question. Okay, sure. Uh, it's really interesting. I actually started out there as a children and youth pastor uh, before I was pastor. So I was there for 33 years as pastor, but then I pastored in a mobile home park for two years. Uh, and uh, I was trying to remember the the dates of that the other day. My wife reminded me, you were in the mobile home park when Elvis died. So, <laughs> so you know, that kind of puts that into perspective. But I had served there prior at Hebron as children and youth pastor, and, and how that uh, took place was I was a church member over at Snevel Westside Baptist Church. It was a church plant. My wife and I had just gotten married. I'd moved up from South Georgia. She had moved up from Miami. I had already graduated. She finished school here and uh, high school here. And so we had met and uh, were married and started attending this church plant. Well, my dad and mom were attending that church too. And they they ran into this guy, the director of missions for the area that worked with all the churches. And I uh, told, uh, my dad told the guy, he said, listen, my son's been called to ministry. And if uh, there's a church looking for anybody to do anything, he'll do it. And then my dad said, and they don't even have to pay him. <laughs> well, thanks, dad. And uh, so out of the blue, this church, he ran back, this church calls me. I'm living in Lawrenceville. Uh, and, and they said, uh, we're looking for someone to do children's ministry. And, uh, Want to know if you'd be interested? So we got your name through the director of missions. I what year is this? This was would have been 1973. Okay. 1973. Wow. Uh, or, or latter part of 73, early part of 74, because okay. we just got married. Okay. Got married in March that year. And so they, I said, well, sure, I'll be glad to talk to you. And they came to my house, and I said, I have two questions. One, where's Decula? <laughs> uh, because 316 did not come to through Decula at that time. It ended in oh, Lawrenceville. No so to get to Decula, you had to go around uh, – uh, Highway 29 to get here, no, so it kidding. was not. There was not a straight shot. I had no idea where this town exists, where this town was, or if it existed. And so they told me, and I said, "Well, the second question is, what's children's ministry?" I grew up in church in South Georgia, where church was church, you right, know? right. And they said, "Well, we've started a children's church, and we want someone to lead that." Long story short, I I agreed to do it, and I came uh, to Hebron part time, worked on weekends, was going to school. And worked in a lighting for a lighting uh, fixture firm during the week uh, to make a living for my wife and I, and um, then I was here for two years, and then a church in Norcross called me in a mobile home park. My wife and I took the leap of faith, bought a mobile home, and moved into the park. The only pastor who had ever lived in the park. Oh, and so I was there two years, and two years to the date, Hebron called me back as pastor. As senior pastor? As senior pastor, yeah. Now, what did the church look like during that period of time? Like, what, Was it in the same location? It's in the same now? location. Okay. Uh, the building that is now the office built that we call the office building in mm-hmm. Hebron, was the main auditorium. Okay. They had built that in 1971. And then there was a, a white block building that uh, you would know it as C building. That's mm-hmm. a one-story building. Uh, was the only, those, that was it, and four acres of land okay uh, and uh so that was that and was all four acres of four land. acres of land uh-huh no kidding well and, four plus a cemetery <laughs> right 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 and and then i mean and so really that building was 
was basically brand new when you were moving into it prior to that. The auditorium was, yes. Had they torn down a building? Like, was there ever an old historic building there was, used to it, be there? It is now in a pasture over over on uh, 29 Highway, off 29 Highway, the Williams family. Uh, oh. uh, you may know guy John D. Williams. Okay. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, his family. Okay. They have that building. So they, they purchased the old church and moved I it? I think they gave it to them because they were like, their family were third generation members of the church and no they were going to do something with it. So I think he volunteered to take it and to move it. And, and it's still there. Still there. As far as I know, it's still there. I'm going to have to go over and yeah. find that at it, some point. Yeah. I, I love the history of yeah. places. So uh, 181 years. Uh, how big was the church during that period? There, of time? there was probably, or there were then about 100 of us, 80 to 100. But fifty of those were children on two church buses. We okay. ran a, that was part of the children's sure, ministry was to run a the busing, a bus yeah, ministry. Sure. And I'm telling you, looking back now, there's uh, that little bus ministry produced so many people. Uh, Kevin Miller, who followed mm-hmm. me as pastor, right. who you know, right. his wife Darla started attending, wow. uh, riding the bus. Wow. Uh, I, Young lady, uh, her name was Sherry Sanson. She's doctor, Dr. Sherry. Their uh, children attended here. Um, she rode the bus mm. and became a medical doctor later. Got, mm. Just the story of that bus ministry is incredible. But that was 50, those, uh, 50 of those people were uh, bus kids. We've had a ton of folks on the show uh, who are now pastors, 12 Stone, Bethlehem, all right. over the place, uh, who who all came up underneath your your leadership, under underneath your you know your pastoring, and uh, and just speak of you as kind of one of those pivotal people that helped form their foundation. So it's not a surprise to, to see you know to see how that how that started you know with this with this genuine heart of faith. Uh, so the, the church 180, 181 years old. Um, it, it it's it exists as a church of a hundred, like a small church mm-hmm. for the for the the first. 150 years right. of it, basically, you know, uh, and so when you take it, there's a hundred ish folks, most of them are bus ministry in there. You're young. So how old would you have been at that point? I was point 25 time? years old. So too, too young to know better, really. Too young to know better. <laughs> I tell people that when I started out, uh, people excused me because I was young. When I finished up, they said, you're just old and senile. So they, you know, <laughs> the middle years were the challenging ones. <laughs> I, you know, I, when, each time I've jumped into an organization, I always love learning the history of it. So I'll be, I'll be honest, like last summer we connected kind of for the first time, like real time where we had connected, connected. And sure. you came over and did devotions with our staff and everything. Listen, the first time I was, I was going to meet you, I really an- anticipated kind of an old guy, like a, like a really old, you know, just th- hearing somebody who's been there for 30 plus years and, right. you know, you just assume. And then I get this vivacious guy who walks up, I'm like, no way, I can't believe this is this is the pastor. But, uh, so I mean, it was a really neat surprise. Yeah, so there's no old guy at the end of that story, I'm sure. Uh, so so when, does, when does God just kind of step in and just have that ministry explode? How, how long are you working there? How long are you serving there before God just starts to, to just unload, just with the blessings. Well, I was very fortunate to have a, a group of people that already had vision and faith. And I think, again, the bus ministry, they had gotten outside the walls and, and of the church when they started that ministry. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of laid the foundation to, to be a, a later our, our uh, uh, fond way of talking about Hebron was a church without walls. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that started back then. But... After I became pastor, there was a, there was a gentleman in the community who I approached on a Sunday afternoon. Have no re, had no idea then why. I kind of was embarrassed to go to his home. He was one of the people in the church that I did not know who had joined the church in the interim when I was in okay. the mobile home park. Okay. And I said, James, I don't know why I'm here, but I just feel that God wants me to talk to you. And uh, he said, I know exactly why you're here. I said, you do? He said, yeah. He said, uh, Sit down. Let me tell you my story. He said, God awakened me about six months, eight months ago, and uh, began to put on my heart that he wanted to do something in this church that was going to make a difference, and that was going to be a God story, not man's story. And uh, and that's why you're here. And and I'm 25 years old. My eyes are wide, and you know, I I didn't even, I didn't even understand all of it. Mm-hmm. I'm just absolutely. All I'm saying is, okay, okay, okay. I said, well, what do you think? He said, I really believe God wants to grow this church. And I said, now remember, we're running right at 100. We're in a town that that year, the high school, the local high school, uh, county school graduated 62 students. No so way. small community, isolated at that time uh, from anything else. And he's telling me that God wants to grow the church. And I said, well, James, I need to ask you a question. 
how's that going to happen? And I really thought he would come out with an organizational chart or something. He said, prayer. I said, prayer. I said, he said, yeah. He said, he said, you're the pastor. I'll follow your leadership. But I really think God wants us to start a prayer group to pray for our church. Uh, he said, would you ask, would you be willing to do that? I said, yeah. I said, sure. I mean, how do you tell a person you don't want to pray with them? So I said, right. sure, I'll do it. I said, but where do we start? He said, I don't know. He said, let's just ask a couple of people. So I went to a couple of people I knew. One of them was 22 years old. He's mm. still in the church to this day. No, he became a very good friend. His name's Mark. I went to Mark, and I'd make a great salesman. You would want me on your sales <laughs> team because this is how I sold this prayer group to him. I said, hey, Mark, you wouldn't want to meet with me on Tuesday night and pray with me, would you? Like that. He said, I'd love to. We were already playing softball together. Softball was big in those days, right. church softball. So right. we were playing ball together. I knew Mark. I knew his wife, Judy. I knew him real well. Uh, but uh, I said, well, James uh, is going to ask a couple of guys, and I'm asking a couple. Let's just do it. We started praying, and I'll tell you, from that prayer group, God changed that church. But let me tell you who he changed first. He changed the leader. Mm. Um, he gave me a love for the church and a love for this community. And it was at that altar, uh, while we were praying on a Tuesday night, nobody even knew we were there, that God said to me, not audibly, much louder, as you've heard said before, uh, I want you to plant your life in this church. Now, he didn't tell me it was going to grow. He didn't tell me the, what the end result would be. In fact, if he'd shown me that, I would have said, no, I'm out of here now because I'm just a kid. Uh, but uh, So I stood up on Sunday, and that was the second thing he showed me. He said, I want you to tell the church that that you'll never lead them into anything that you'll not stay to see it through. Mm. And I think that's another pivotal point of leadership. I see too many leaders that lead people into things, and then they abandon them mm -hmm. in the middle of it. And I think that's why a lot of churches, people are real uh, reluctant to accept the vision of the pastor because they've seen it. They've seen the vision come, and then he's left and left them holding it. But God said, you tell them that you're committed to them, you're committed to this church until I tell you to leave, and that you'll never lead them in any, into anything that you'll not see it through. And so that, that, began, that began the journey right there out of that prayer group. And, and where does that grow to? How many people jump in on that prayer group? Like how, how does it was the Holy a, Spirit It was work? never announced from the pulpit. And uh, it was always anywhere from 6 to 12. It never was a large group. It how was did, how group. did you see God move through that group? Like what, what did that look like? It First of all, he started changing the, the lives of the people in there. Uh, started giving those men and myself even greater vision for what he wanted to okay. do. That's how this school right. came about. That's Through how that the, the building of the, the facilities we built uh, came about. Uh, the ministries that we did, the crusade that you've heard about, I'm sure that we did in the stadium in Tequila for, for 20 years. All of that came out of that prayer group. Mm. All of it. And so those men, as God began to work on their lives, he began to uh, give them a vision and the courage to reach out to people who were non-Christians, who were not believers in the community, and to invite them to come to the church and to be part of what was going on, that kind of thing. Fascinating. And, and does the church start to grow immediately in no. regard to that? No. Um, in fact, uh, I was looking back, I found some of the early... Uh, statistics. Uh, in fact, I found our first year budget. Our first year budget at Hebron, 1978-79, was $26,000. Oh, my goodness. That was everything. Wow. I mean, that was 100% of the budget. And uh, and then uh, I watched that slowly. The church never uh, – we had periods where it would do this kind of a vertical leap in growth, but most of the growth was kind of just a gradual mm -hmm, mm -hmm. incline. And uh, so I think what God was doing, uh, and I think this is so important to leadership, he was allowing us to grow at a pace that we could be prepared for what was next. That, you know, Interesting. We yeah. could get settled in here, and then he would take us here, and, and so on. If he's going to call you, he's going to enable you. That's right. But it's going to be in incremental steps. That's right. It's yeah. so interesting because I, I had uh, – uh, Pastor Kevin from 12 Stone on, and, and he was talking about the growth of their church. And in the same regard, that it began with prayer mm -hmm. and that it was incremental steps and that they slugged it out for decades before anything happened. Mm. You know, so it's that long-term faithfulness. And I really, I really do, I look at that in today's leadership model in my field in educational leadership. The average tenure of somebody who's in my position is 3.6 years. That's mm -hmm. it. 
That's yeah. about the tenure of a pastor. It too. is. It's yeah. a, a, the pastor, I think the last one I saw from George Barna was 4.2. Right. And, and you just think, like, I don't even think you know people until, you, until years five through eight. Like, I don't, I don't even think you know them. Uh, to, to really say that you love them, you know, like, like right. really love them. Uh, and, and yet most folks, most guys who are jumping into senior leadership are bailing before any of the good stuff happens, yep. you know? They, they face the challenges. They, they face the opposition. And uh, ju- I think many lead just before God breaks through. Uh, you said something that I think is really, really important, and, it, it, and it's the building of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that takes time. Right. Uh, the higher your level of trust, the quicker people will ad- adopt and accept uh, change, and they'll accept uh, your vision. Uh, and, and so as you build trust with them, you, you, they know you love them. When they know that you care, and they know that your heart is in their best interest and primarily in the best interest of the kingdom, mm. then they're willing to follow you. I think one of the steps that a lot of uh, pastors uh, skip, and I think it's happening in every part of, of uh, the world, uh, is that answering the why questions. Mm. You, know, uh, you know, it's kind of like I grew up in an era where it was, you, if your dad said do it, you said why, and he said because I'm dad. <laughs> you know? And I think pastors have entered that, and, and they've bought into that too. Why do, why do you do that? Because I'm the leader. I'm just yeah, telling you right. that never works long that's term. Right. Never, never works long term. Got to be relational. That's exactly right. But when you can show them why, when they can see, even if they don't totally like it, if they can understand why. Uh, I mean, even to the point of uh, changing styles or that kind of thing. I remember us wanting to make some changes, and I asked our people, how many of you have children and grandchildren? Well, most of them did. I said, how many of you, if they were not living here, would want a church to do whatever it takes to reach them? Well, everybody raised their hand. I said, then our question is, what will we do to reach the children and the students and the young adults God's brought into our mm-hmm, community? Mm-hmm. I said, so the reason we need to make some changes is so that we can reach that next generation while keeping the current generation. Mm-hmm. Answering the why question. You know, any organization that grows, any Christian organization, church or school, I always see that there's a, there's a mindset. There, there's both a message and the method, right? Mm-hmm. The message can't change. It's, it's gospel-driven. That's right. But the method should change. Should change. I, I remember I was chatting with a, a group of folks at, at, at the ministry where I used to serve in Savannah, and uh, there I was on pastoral staff and, and, uh, and in leading the school. And I remember chatting with them, and they really, they wanted just an old-fashioned service. They just did. And I asked the, a big group of them who I loved, like, you know, been to dinner with them, cared right. about them deeply. Yeah. But I said, I said, you know, how many of you are your, are your grandkids actually coming to this church? Not a single one of them. And I, and I said, listen, here, here's what you have to determine. You desiring your own prerogative, your own method, your own old-fashioned thing that you enjoyed 20 or 30 years ago, you are saying that is more important than the eternity of your grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in that situation, they still weren't willing to change the method. But it's when people say, I'm going to place everything aside except for the message. The message shouldn't, be, shouldn't change. The message shouldn't be watered down. But the method right. should change. Right. And organizations that grow almost always have that as, as a core principle of, of, of kind of who they are as an organization. And, and it's, it is critical because uh, everything has a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Everything has a shelf life. Sure. The, the crusade, I'll go back to it, that we did for 19 years, incredible results. So, so a lot of people come to Christ. It, it was our gift to the community. We didn't take an offering. We didn't do anything like that. But we would have seven, 8,000 people come no kidding. On, a, on a given night to hear a concert and the message preached by, you know, a gospel preacher. I, incredible, but it had a shelf life. Mm-hmm. Now, when we, when we moved away from it, you know, our people accepted that, but somebody said, oh, I missed Starlight. Well, I missed it too. But the people who missed it the most, it's, that is where their life change That's took right. place. Yeah. And, 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 I, and, and I learned I had to help our people understand, look, listen, your life change took place during that period utilizing that method but that may not be the method that God uses mm-hmm. to change That's the next right. person's life. That's and right. we've got to be willing to adjust to that. That's right. 
So we'll come back to kind of the, the incremental growth of the church. I'm, I'll be intrigued to get back to that. Let's come back to the kind of the longevity of leaders for okay. just a minute. Uh, why do you think guys bail so quickly? And, and maybe a follow-up question of that is, is what, what are some of the tools that you've learned through the years to handle criticism? Okay. So two-part question. Yeah. Uh, I think, one, uh, the answer is, Part of the reason they leave is criticism. You know, they start receiving criticism, uh, if, if especially if things start changing in the church and they don't do things the way the previous leader did. And, and you know, who's the most popular leader in the church? The last that's one. That's right. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so, and that's one reason. And I think there's another reason. Um, uh, I think the, and, and I want to be kind of when I say this, but they look at a better that what they think is a better situation. They, sure. you know, maybe a larger situation or, you know, a, a more productive situation, a bigger community, whatever. And and sometimes just because that appears to be better, that's right, doesn't mean that it really is. And so I, I and so I think the the obstacles that they face, the uh, the fact that so often and, and this is big to me. That's why I continue to coach pastors. The loneliness. Mm-hmm. I mean, everybody talks to the pastor, but who does the pastor talk Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Listen, leadership is lonely. It is says. lonely. It's yeah. lonely at the top. You've yeah. heard it all your life. It but I think some of us who have been there can help with that. I do pastor roundtables. Mm-hmm. I, I continue to meet with groups of pastors, and all I do is throw topics on the table and let them discuss it among themselves because they need, they need to hear from someone else. They're not in this by themselves. That's right. And so, so I think that's why they bail. Criticism, nobody likes it. I, I don't like it. I, I, I can't say I was the ba- best at handling it. But I, also, I had to learn that often there's two, two kinds of criticism. There's that criticism that's going to come just because some people love to you know, they, they're never happy. They're, sure, right. They're, everything, they're going to be negative. Right. But everything. I heard Adrian Rogers say one time, who was one of my heroes, he said, I this particular pastor was in a church. This guy always criticized everything. He said, well, he's going to call on him to pray one night. And he said he got tongue-tied, and he said, Mr. Jones, would you stand and lead us in a word of criticism? I mean, a word of prayer. <laughs> and so, you know, uh, so you've always got that critic. Right. And I think sometimes pastors think there's more of them than there are. They're the, I had this, someone say this to me yesterday. They said, I learned in my church that they were the loudest, but they were not the majority. Mm-hmm. And sometimes... If, if if we can, as, lead, as leaders, and I had to learn this, and I learned it again through one of my prayer partners who came to me because I was feeding that. There was there was one or two that did not like what was happening in church. I spent every Sunday trying to convince them, mm. every Sunday. Right. I mean, man, uh, you know, I'm competitive, so I thought I'm going to win this thing, and they were convinced they were going to win this thing. So every Sunday, my young leader, younger than me, who was in my prayer, my prayer partner, he said, can I speak into you? Um, Anytime anybody says that, get ready. They're about to blow the boom. I said, sure. He said, I see what you're doing, and I get it. He said, but if you'll ignore that, those voices, there's a group of us over here who are ready to go. Feed us, teach us, and show us. And when I changed directions mm-hmm. and stopped feeding the criticism, at that point, things began to, to change. Yeah. And, and, and those majority voices began to speak up, and yeah. those visionary voices. There's a second part of criticism, though, that I had to learn. There's truth in some criticism, Absolutely. too. Absolutely. And yeah. we have to accept that. And, uh, you know, there were times in, in my life and someone would criticize, and I'd go back and look at it, and it wasn't that what we were doing was wrong, but I was moving too fast. Sure. I was, I, you know, if again, uh, I think I heard John Maxwell say this. If you think you're leading and you look back and there's nobody following, you're just taking a walk. That's right. <laughs> you're just taking yeah. a walk. And if you get out so far in front of your people, they can't see you, you're no longer leading them. Mm-hmm. And I think there were times that uh, I would step out so far that the people really couldn't see where we were going. And uh, I'd get some criticism. And th- as I looked at it, I hated it, but I'd look at it and go, you know what? They're right. I need to just slow down. You know, I, I, as I'm coaching young leaders in the educational realm, uh, I have a phrase that I say all the time, but I say, listen, I, I've never received criticism when it wasn't true. And then they'll say, what are you talking about? Like, you must be a horrendous human. You know, and, but I say, listen, what I have to measure is uh, at some, most of the time, a lot of times, it's, it might be 1% true. That's right. But there's truth to it. Unfortunately, there are times when it's 99% true. Mm-hmm. And those are the times where it's really a necessary for a hard adjustment. But, but in every level of criticism, there's some, there's some component of truth mm-hmm. that, that the wise leader pauses and seeks to adjust so that, so that he or she can work towards the growth of the kingdom in the best way possible. 
but that takes real maturity. It, it's funny, you know, and, and I have certainly seen this happen in, in, with my life. I'll suspect you, you have as well. Uh, I can have a hundred things go well. I mean, I can get great emails. I can be seeing God's hand move. I can have great conversations with students. I can be, and then I'll walk back in. I'll get one negative email. And I'll think, well, the whole thing is shot. That's exactly right. And th- I think that's one of the tools that the enemy uses right. to keep us discouraged. And going back to the question you asked, I think that's why pastors sometimes leave too soon mm-hmm. is because they they can't uh, put into perspective right. that, that criticism they're getting. Because you're right, maybe 99 people that day have complimented them mm-hmm. and then that one. Right. You'll focus on the one. Yeah. I'm telling you, human nature is to focus on that one person. Yeah. yeah, you know, we talk about the the teaching in Matthew on how to handle how to handle conflict, uh, which is a teaching that frankly isn't taught a whole lot. No. Uh, you know, the first step of that is to go to the person one on one, and I think a lot of times people don't know how to do that. Like they don't have the tools in their toolbox on how to do that. I, I learned a really simple lesson uh, early in my marriage. So my wife and I, my wife and I, uh, Karen. Uh, we j- just just celebrated thirty years this mm. summer, uh, and uh, and you know thirty years—that's a long time. We 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 had uh, several different people over this last little while. We went on a cruise together with our family, and we've been out to dinner, done a bunch of thirty-year things, you right. know. And it seems like each time, you know, the server or the waitress, whatever, ask, "What does it take to hold together for thirty years?" And and so Karen and I are like, you know, we need to come up with a better answer. That you know, like like I don't know, like we're just sticking it out. Uh, but but you know, in 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 that process, what we learned early in our marriage was that uh, if we were going to experience like have criticism with each other, so I, I was just an insensitive guy. I hadn't been married before. I like to work. So I just stay at work forever, you know, and I'd come home late and she's cooked a meal that's now cold. And, and, uh, I wasn't doing it to be awful. I was just awful by nature, I guess, you know, and, uh, and, but Karen and I quickly realized is that if, if we had the pattern of discussion to say, you're so insensitive, why would you do that? Why would you hurt me? Okay. Pause there. That's never successful. But instead to back up and take this very simple change to say, Hey, James, when you didn't come home for three hours after you told me, hey, here's how that made me feel. And that simple change, it changes the whole Mm -hmm. trajectory of a conversation. So having learned that lesson 30 years ago, I now try to incorporate that into any time I'm having conflict so that if somebody has something negative, I'm in. Like, I actually... I'm a sucker for it. I actually love conflict uh, now because I've learned, I've got tools in my toolbox on how to handle it, where I'll go with that person and say, hey, you wrote this email. I want to make sure that we address this together. Uh, let's find out where the truth is in that. If there was something that was just real personal to say, hey, l- let's pause on that for one second. Hey, when you say that, here's how that makes me feel. Is that what you intend? And in almost every situation, they'll say, oh, that's not what I intend. <coughs> you know, here's what I intend. But I, I think so often uh, leaders bail before they ever get to those conversations. And, and here's what I'm saying is that those conversations with those people who have been sometimes my greatest critics mm-hmm. have become some of my very best friends. Absolutely. You know, that, that's where growth takes place. When, when humans get to rub up against each other and make each other a little bit offended and a little bit upset and, and, and come out of it closer, then that's where the good stuff happens. That's right. You know, and, and I think I think a lot of folks just bail on it before then, you know. And I think, too, you, you said something that's so important. Of course, when I started out, there were no emails. It was mm-hmm. handwritten letters. That's right. So yes, that's letters. right. Anonymous letters. Anonymous. Right, right, right. And those you could do nothing about. Yeah, I throw them away. Yeah, but those that the people would sign or whatever, right. they'd send me a note. And then later, especially in the email uh, generation, and I encourage our staff the same way. If you receive an email that's uh, a critical email, do not respond with an email. Mm-hmm. People do not see your body language. That's they do right. not hear your tone of voice. All they see are the words on the page. My policy was if I received a critical email was to pick up the phone nice. and call them and say, can we meet? Nice. And often just by, here's what they would say, oh, I didn't mean it that way. Right. You know? That's right. Or I didn't that, intend that. Yeah, I didn't intend that. And I'm, I'm sorry. And, and, and that wasn't always true, but 90% of the time sure. it was true. Yeah. But just by having that conversation, if nothing else, we could meet in the middle. That's right. You know, or yeah. agree to disagree, but yeah. have an agreeable spirit. With right. It. And uh, right. I, I think, it, by the way, they don't teach this stuff in college and seminary. That's the problem. They don't and they should. People's, 
I have they begged should. for our seminaries to teach people yeah. skills. Right. And I, and I think they're doing a better job of it today. But uh, 90% of pastors who get into trouble, uh, it's not a moral issue. Right. It's, it's, it's not theological. It's a lack of people skills. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, my favorite statement with young pastors, in fact, I was doing a, uh, a, a teaching uh, for a group of young pastors, and I stood up and I said, listen, I'm going to teach you in five minutes how to improve your sermon 100%. And they all got out their iPads and their phones. I said, put it all away. You're not going to need any of it. It's very simple. Walk slowly through the crowd. I said, Sunday morning, sit down with that grandmother whose grandson played baseball last week and ask her how the game went. Yeah. That, that dad, uh, who's, uh, that man whose wife just died, sit down and have prayer with him. I said, when you stand up to preach, your sermon just got 100% better. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, any questions? I said, yeah, what do you mean better? Nothing changed about the sermon. I said, no. But something changed about your connection with That's the right. person. The heart changed. Your heart changed. Yeah. I said, now it doesn't really matter if you preach the best sermon or you preach the worst sermon. They're listening to you that's right. because of your heart. Yeah. And uh, I think that's critical. Yeah. Uh, I, Karen and I were up, this was our last week of vacation this last week, and we were up at Lake Chatug, which, is, by the way, is gorgeous if yes. you have not been. Uh, so we, we were up there just on the water the whole the whole week. But on Sunday, we went to a, went, went to a church up there, Catalyst Church. And uh, the pastor, I was impressed. I was really pleased with him. That he, he uh, first of all, he was at the door before the sermon and after the sermon. Uh, but he was just going through, and you could tell. You know, he's shaking hands and and loving on his people. He knows their lives. Uh, I'm a, I'm an observer of people, and and uh, that that little church is growing and, mm. and doing really and doing really well. And I, I'll tell you, it, it's exactly what's taking place is that that growth is directly related to a pastor who loves his people. And, uh, and I think that's always true of, of leadership, you know, in, in regard to that. Um, tell us a little bit about the idea of balancing family life. Uh, when, you're, when the church is booming and you're working a million hours a week, uh, how do you balance having a, having a wonderful wife and kids? And uh, give us some insights into that. When I learn that, I'll get back with you <laughs> in another podcast. Uh, no, I, I was not the best at that, but my wife helped We'd be better. My wife's an educator, you know, mm-hmm. so she worked as well. So we were both working, but she was so invested in the in the children. When I was when I was gone, whether it was something with the church, I also did chaplaincy with police and fire department, mm-hmm. and uh, doing things, speaking other places and kind of things. When I was gone, she made sure that the children had a great experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, that so a lot of it. I've got to give the credit to her. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, I'd eat so much pizza at uh, youth gatherings. <laughs> My idea of a great meal is not to sit down and have pizza. I mean, I'm not opposed to pizza. Right. But uh, so when I was out of town, she would have pizza blast for just the kids mm-hmm. at uh, so. My children would see Miss Terry, who was my secretary at the church. They would see her and say, Miss Terry, can you find a place for my daddy to go so we can have pizza? <laughs> so so I give a lot of the credit to my wife. But also, uh, the second part was using a calendar. And that's how I had to learn a uh, time management mm-hmm. system. Of, mm-hmm. so, you know, it's all changed how we do that now, right. of course, the devices. Right. But then it was notebook and paper. In fact, my first time management system was called Time. And I got into it because my pastor buddy, Ike Reichard, had called me and said, hey, man, I'm hosting the seminar at the church. You need to come. I think it'll help you balance your life. And uh, I said, what is it? He said, it's a time management seminar. And I literally said this. It wasn't a joke. I said, Reichard, I don't have time. <laughs> and he said, uh, that's why you need to come. So I went and I learned. So I use a calendar. F- my kids play sports. And if Amanda had a basket- basketball game at Tequila, that was on my calendar. Mm. And, and so I started calendaring times. Yeah. What's important, you that schedule. Was, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now, I got yeah. some pushback from some in a pastor's group about yeah. that one time. I was talking about this. And one pastor said, I said, I had a guy call me and wanted to know if I could meet with him. And I said, can't. I've got an appointment at 6 o'clock that night. Well, it was our daughter's basketball game. And, uh, and this guy said, weren't you lying? You didn't have an appointment. It was just a family event. I said, I want you to slow down and listen to what you just said to me. I said, the most important event of that day was that family event. I said, I'm no good to that guy who needs to talk to me if I'm not being the family person I need to be. So I... I believe in. I, I had to get to the point where I was. I, I would calendar. My secretary uh, was really good at that. She would get with my wife, and they would sit down, 
And they would put times and events on my calendar, mm-hmm. and they had permission to do that mm-hmm. that would help me keep that balance yeah. in my life. Yeah, my wife has access to my calendar. My assistant, they, they communicate back and forth an awful lot. It's funny, Jason from over at Bethlehem was on the, sh- was on the show a little while ago, and uh, uh, he's one of your guys who, who grew up under you. And, uh, but he, he's, he said something really that I've never, I've never heard before, but I really enjoyed it. He said, he said, you know, what I try to say to my folks at church is that at some point in time, you're going to have another pastor. There's going to be another pastor who comes in. These kids of mine, they're never going to have another dad. Mm. And so I'm, I'm going to take my roles in the right priority. And I'm going to make sure that I prioritize my family and my kids as well. I just I thought that was a really wise statement. I thought that was a really good statement. Very wise. Statement. And Jason has done that. Yeah, he's, he's he done has. A, he's and done. A, he's like one of my kids, my own children, mm-hmm. and and I've watched him do that. Uh, I I, he, I think he did something also that's important to that, Dr. Taylor. He told his church. He shared with the church. I think sometimes we don't share enough. Mm-hmm with the church, you know, I, I think we have to remind them how important family, because when you tell them they're all, they all get it. Mm-hmm. Every mom out mm-hmm. there especially gets it. Yeah. Uh, and that's what really helped change uh, me in a lot of the ways. Some of the men came to my wife and said, he needs to start taking more time off. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they started. That's awesome. And it's because their wives went to them and yes, said, that's right. he needs more time with his yeah. family. And so we they, need more guys who support the senior leader like that. Exactly. Really Absolutely. And, yeah. and I was, listen, I was so blessed at Hebron. Yeah. Uh, I could, I have not one complaint about that church. They, they were great to my family. They were great to me. They allowed my children to be children mm-hmm. and not live in the fishbowl. They, 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 they understood they were kids just like other kids. Awesome. They allowed us that. In fact, they started encouraging me. And I know not every size church can do this. I'm not saying you should. But to some level, they started encouraging me to take off July, every mm-hmm. July. In fact, I was thinking about that on the way over. I said, a few years ago, I'd have been off this month mm-hmm. because uh, they said, you know, uh, Kevin Miller's daddy came to yeah. me uh, and said, listen, the church will be here when you get back. We'll be okay, and you'll be okay. Go and get refreshed. Go get refreshed. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, I think it's a two-way street, having people and leaders, but it takes time to develop that too. Right. You know? Absolutely. All right, so I know I'm going to get in trouble if I don't come back to the Hebron story. Okay. Uh, So so let me come back there. We kind of left it with with young Pastor Larry, uh, and the the church is really just still in that, that 100 capacity. You've got a group of guys around you where you are praying and thinking God-sized tasks rather than man-sized tasks. Uh, when does the church, I mean, at one point in time, y'all are running 3000 or so on a Sunday. Yeah, it, it, it was, it was between three and four okay. in that ballpark. And, and so t- take me kind of to, to that big step. We we've got a hundred in the church with half of them coming in on a bus ministry. What are the steps? How long does it take to get to that spot where you're, you're then running three to 4,000? Well, the growth, I think the visible growth really started about four or five years. It took about five years. I mean, there was a little bit of growth, but the, the, most of the, the the growth, the first four or five years, internal growth, spiritual growth. Uh, again, people learning to trust me, uh, learning to trust each other, developing those relationships. So people should, and, and the community started growing a little bit. Now, not like it has in the recent years, but people were moving in. So people started coming to the church. The first thing our people learned was, was they learned how to be good inviters. I would tell them, you may not yet know how to share the gospel. My goal is for everybody here to know how and everybody in here to do it. Don't misunderstand. But before you get to that point, you can be a good inviter. Everybody can invite their neighbor. And we started giving them opportunities to do that. Before Easter, I would, and I, I learned this from the Bill Graham School of Evangelism. I gave them a card and I said, I want you to list five people that you will pray for, invest in, and invite to come Easter Sunday. And they started doing that. So as people started coming and feeling that welcoming atmosphere and the people accepting them, the church began to grow. So the next step was adding staff, which is a challenge in itself. Every staff member initially that we added either started volunteer or part time. No kidding. Everyone. 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 Initially. Now, not in later years, but initially, everyone. Uh, Steve Parr uh, was uh, our first student pastor, mm. part-time. John Williams, who is still at Hebron, uh, our worship leader, hired him my first year there, and uh, we were paying him, I don't mind telling you, we were paying him about $75 a week. Wow. To be, uh, he was a band director and, and doing worship at Hebron. So every staff member either started off volunteer, but they built their ministry 
to a place where they could go full time. So we started developing staff. Cool. And then those people, the, the hardest thing for me was turning loose. In order for a church to go, you can, you can go from zero to 300, and you can pretty well handle it. Mm-hmm. 300 to 500. That's right. You're getting into that range That's where right. it's going to be more difficult. But above 500, you can't. And I had one of my prayer group, again, come to me. And uh, there were days I wondered why I ever started that group. No, I, I mean, they, <laughs> they were so good for me. But one of the men came and said, hey, you know, God's changing this church, and he's growing it, and he's doing what we've asked him to do. But there's some opposition. I said, who? He said, you. Huh. He said, you're trying to pastor this church the way you pastored it That's at 300. Right. Yeah. He said, turn loose. It'll be okay. Well, when you grow up with one, that's right, and you love being a pastor, absolutely, and you love doing ministry, right? It's it's difficult not to do that. It is. So I had to empower the staff who had to empower their volunteers. So that was the the tiered approach. I empowered the staff; they empowered their volunteers, and from that, the church began to grow, and then it just became exponential growth. Uh, you know, uh, each ministry began to grow. Uh, Jason Britt's daddy was associate pastor for 25 years, incredible preacher, incredible leader, but but knew God had called him to to do Sunday school and small group work, mm-hmm. and uh, and so he took that and it began to grow. So the key to it becoming large, an organization becoming larger, is keeping it small at the same yeah, time. That's right, and and that only happens by shared leadership. It does. It, it just that's one of the biggest issues that I'll see of guys who are in larger organizations is that they're still trying to lead it like it's a small organization. And you just have to trust your people. You do. Like you just hire great people and turn them loose. Right. You know, uh, that is, that's hard to do that, that I think all of us in senior leadership at some level, we're a bit OCD uh, and a, and a bit controlling. Like at at some level, I don't think I've ever met somebody at a large organization who is a little nuts in regard to that. Oh, I agree. You know, but, but that's a, that's something where you really have to balance it. And and right now I'm working with two guys right now who are just, they're, they're micromanagers and, and they're in, they're in medium sized churches that have the ability to get to much larger. And I'm really encouraging these guys in regard to what their leadership style is going to look like for this next generation. One, I'm encouraging them, stay. Stay where you're at. Bloom where you're planted, right. you know, uh, and, and wait for the good stuff to happen. But, but really trying to get to that point where they're able to share leadership, which is tough. I mean, it's just it sometimes is. that's just hard to do when you want to see everything happen. All right, so take me to what year did you guys build the new, the, the larger the, lar- the last one? Yeah. Uh, 2005, 2006, we entered into it, the okay. spring of 2006. Okay. And it's a big building. It it's is a big like thirty six hundred or something like that. Yes. Yeah. And uh, uh, would you do that differently? And I, I, I say that, you, no, and I because we've already talked about this yes. before, so I know that you would. But it's, I'm prim- kind of priming your pump. On I'm this. glad you asked that question. I would do it totally different. But that was the generation we were sure. in, and and we did it. And I will tell you, every pastor I've talked to who built a building that size, when we built a building that size, would not do that today. Yeah. Uh, people want that intimate setting. That's right. Uh, the multiplication of services, the multiplication of campuses. There's so many ways to do it right. uh, that we didn't realize. Uh, that we had available to us at the time. Uh, Jason, to talk about Jason, Jason, I taught now. Jason is a great leader, so he, he was really, he wasn't asking me because it was going to change anything. He already knew what he was going to do, but he asked me that question when they were preparing to do right. their, the build, their new building. He said, Larry, if you were doing it today, would you build a big building? I said, Jason, I know you already know what you're going to do, but I'm going to say it anyway. Whatever you do, don't. Yeah. I said, whatever you do, don't. I said, uh, there's no reason and and that kind of thing. I said, if I were building Hebron today and we were the same size, I would probably build it about half the size mm-hmm. that we built it. And yeah, then I would have services. I'd do Thursday night. I'd do yeah. Sunday. Now, we did Saturday night in the 90s before mm. anybody else did was doing really? it. Yeah, we oh, did Saturday night. Edge. Yeah, uh, you know, and, 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 and guys lied to me about it. They told me that, oh, I'll do Saturday night. You just come in, preach at six o'clock, and so Saturday night you, st- you still have all day Saturday. Listen, the day I preach, my mind goes to oh, preaching. Yeah. I don't care. I could not enjoy Saturday. That's right. Our staff could not enjoy Saturday, but we did it. But if I were if I were doing it today, that's the kind of thing I do. I do multiple services, multiple campuses, multiple venues, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, so no, I would not. I would not build it. But that's what you did. It's what you did. In fact, I told Pastor Landon, who I love very much, yeah. he's doing a phenomenal job. I told him one day we were at a funeral. I looked at him and said, "I apologize." He said. What? 
what for? I said, we're giving you this monstrosity you got here. I said, but you notice I say that with a smile because I'm walking out and I'm going home. That's now. right. That's <laughs> right. It with yeah. You. Yeah. It's, you know, you, you look around the country, like one of the old famous churches, Park Street in, in Boston. Uh, you know, one time that was one of the epicenters for one of the great revivals. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and I, I think it might see 6,000 or something. I mean, just this monstrosity of a building, you know, and they're running like 400, which is a healthy size of a building, a, a congregation. Uh, but you're in a building that seats this. I mean, and it's just, it's hard to not walk in every week thinking, wow, you know, that's, that's, right. that's tough, you know? Uh, so, so interesting, you know, just from a, from a leadership perspective, uh, we literally, our time is flying by. I would love for us to chat a little bit just because it's kind of one of the epicenters of this show is the idea of having a calling versus just having a job. Mm. And and we might say, well, hey, professional holy guys who get to preach on Sunday, do their thing, they, they all know they have a calling. But you and I both know, we both rub shoulders with guys who are in full-time ministry. They are full-time in ministry who still have jobs and not a calling. Uh, you have a calling on your life. You still do, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, how, how do you relate to that idea of, of how do we define a calling and how do we foster having a calling on our life rather than merely a job? Right. I th- I, you've, you've hit on a point that I think is really important today because we don't hear as much about calling today as we did in my uh, generation. In fact, call to ministry in my generation was was kind of easy, even if you if if you fought against it. I mean, I was I didn't start it. People I get asked a lot. Uh, did you want to be a pastor when you were in high school? I said, did you know me when I was in high school? <laughs> no. And I said, uh, no. I mean, that was further thing from my mind. I was involved in church. Sure. I mean, in, in, in very involved in church, but no. Well, I was going to work in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I was going to work in law enforcement with the Department of Natural Resources. Went to school to do that. I wanted to, uh, then they called it the game warden. I, in fact, I tell people I was going to get paid to hunt, fish, and arrest my friends. <laughs> uh, you know? But it was while I was in college that I sensed that God had another direction for my life. And uh, and it was without question that this is the 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 passion God was putting in placing in me, the, the skill set that he was developing had not always been there. Public speaking was not something in high school, but I was I was learning to really love people and to be around people, and I was becoming a people person. All that was was God calling and God developing. Uh, again, to quote Agent Rogers, uh, it says, God doesn't call the equipped, he equips the call. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he, I knew without a doubt that this was the direction he was calling me to. And I see, I see people in all walks of life that they will tell you that's their calling, mm-hmm. that God has called them to do that. Billy Britt was a great example. Billy Britt was a lead pastor. Could have remained a lead pastor. Could have gone back to being a lead pastor. And I asked him several times. I said, it'd break my heart, but if you want to be a lead pastor, I will help you. He said, Larry, when I was called, the only thing you could be called to was a lead pastor. Mm -hmm. He said, but that was never what I was called to. Mm -hmm. He said, God called me to work with small groups. I know it without a doubt. And, And you look at his how he was equipped and you look at how he handled it and there was no question about mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. that God had called him to do that so uh, the, the difference in a job listen when you know it's a calling you can't walk away from that's it that's right yeah so that's I think that's the difference if you look at it as just a job you can walk away from it well I think that's one of the, the greatest lessons that we're seeing with this new generation and frankly that I'm just so encouraged by is that the, the lesson that I'm teaching my students all the time is that you can have a calling in whatever career Absolutely. God's calling you to do. You know, we've had surgeons on the show. We've had uh, business people on the show. We've had all people from every different walk of life. The thing that they all have in common is that they have a calling to do what they're doing, uh, that it's not just a job, that they're really looking at how can they be used by the kingdom in this vocation. And that that's such a that's such a huge blessing, and and I like the fact that you said you know that's something that that a lot, a lot of times we're not hearing about nowadays, uh, and I frankly love the idea of taking it one step past that, saying it might feel easy to be a, be called and to be a missionary or a pastor, but you can be the biologist or you can be this you know whatever right. it is, the Absolutely. lawyer, the doctor, Absolutely. whatever it is. My uh, wife, yeah, she exactly. knew she was called to be an educator, right? No question, right. She knew it when she was eight years old, right? 
you know. And it's pretty pretty neat to be able to see that. Hey, so tell tell me what's taking place nowadays. I know that that uh, you you know you're you're not really you're not retired. You're still doing a ton of stuff. So tell us a little bit about what ministry looks like right now. Sure. Okay. It really, look, three levels. One, I do interim pastorates. Mm-hmm. I'm taking a break from that this summer. Uh, for two reasons. One, uh, because I've done one since I left Hebron, uh, different churches, but wow. pretty much solidly I've done an interim. So I've taken the summer. That way we could travel a little bit uh, on weekends. But uh, also I get to visit my son-in-law's church and, and some friends' churches and awesome. that kind of thing. Um but I normally do interim pastorates, but I do an interim where I go in not just to preach on Sunday, but to help the church prepare for the next pastor. Mm. I deal with the tough stuff. That's right. I talk about the t- topics, some of the things we've talked about, mm. so that he can be ahead of the game when he comes. So I do that. The second thing that I do, I still do pastor roundtables and coach pastors. I love sitting down with the pastors and just just talking and, and helping them to, to navigate some of the, the difficulties and that kind of thing. Uh, thirdly, I'm now part-time uh, with the Georgia Baptist Healthcare Foundation. In the 90s, Georgia Baptist sold their hospitals. Mm-hmm. And it's the right decision. You look at it at hospitals now, and it was the right decision. But they took all that money, and they put it into a foundation. Out of that foundation, uh, grants are provided to health care facilities for the underserved, mm. uh, charitable health care facilities, uh, Christ-centered uh, facilities. And what we do, uh, people write grants requesting uh, funds, and then we fund those clinics around the state. They don't mm. just, they're not just bad, they can be sure. from a lot of different directions, but they're Christ-centered and they're charitable health care facilities. Um, we did $9 million this year. Wow. And uh, so I, I lead that. One of the things I committed to doing uh, was to visit a lot of the clinics. And, man, the stories I'm hearing, the life change that's taking place is incredible. So I'm doing that as well. And then, fourthly, I'm chasing grandchildren. <laughs> They're very involved in sports and that kind of thing, that's so awesome. I'm chasing them. We have our first one on, on, on the way, so we're very excited. It's a game changer. It's a life changer. You'll have no problem finding balance when the grandchild comes. Because awesome. you're going to be – it's all about the grandchild. <laughs> well, praise God. Larry, listen, it is such a privilege to have you on the show. Uh, here our time has passed, and I feel like we just started. Uh, I just – I love seeing the long-term faithfulness uh, of men who have – who have lived it out, and their faithfulness hasn't stopped. It's such a powerful testimony uh, to to other folks, other leaders who are who are striving to do the same thing and to weather the storm. So, Larry, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show, and thank you for your long term faithfulness in our area as well. Well, thank you for having me. And listen, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. I am so excited about what God's doing uh, through Hebrew Christian Academy. As I told you before, we went on air, sitting on a cruise ship talking to a family, and they said, hey, we're about to send our child to this school in Decula called Hebrew Christian Academy. And, uh, <laughs> and so and we got to talk, met another one I didn't tell you about in Cozumel, Mexico. Same thing. They're about to send their child Unbelievable. here. You're making an impact. So thank you for having me. Thank you for what you're doing. And, man, I'm your biggest cheerleader. Thank you, Pastor. Appreciate it. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Joy of Leadership podcast. Living in the center of God's will is a rare blessing in today's day and age. Help us share this vital story of passionate leadership. If you would like to comment on the show or if you know someone who would be a perfect guest, contact us at thejoyofleadership at gmail.com. If you like the show and don't want to miss a single episode, make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast platform.